Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 64, June 6th to June 12th, 1862. Last week, we talked about Seven Pines fighting at the time the largest battle in the East. Lee has now taken command, and we will have a little pause in our action as both sides see reinforcements. This week, we will spend some time out in the valley, concluding our business there for the time being. Also, we will see a battle for Memphis, the next target along the Mississippi River for the Union in the West. Finally, we see an uptick in morale for the rebels in the East with a very howdy-do to Jeb Stewart birthing a legend. First, we will talk Bluff City, but before we do that, I do want to talk about the Patreon episode that's coming out this month. I am doing another picture slideshow, which are all going to be images of the Gaines Mill battlefield, which is one of my favorites in the Richmond area. So much like I did for Pea Ridge, I'll be doing the same thing for Gaines's Mill. I will say that Gaines's Mill is going to come out at the end of the month. So it's going to be not quite lining up with the timeline here, but I hope to do one hopefully for Malvern Hill as well for July. I know that's back-to-back slideshows but I think that's another one that's not not as well traveled uh, shall we say so that will be a good set of images as well if that sounds like something that would interest you the link to the patreon is in the show description and once again of course your support for the show is greatly appreciated Let's go over the strategic situation around Memphis. With the fall of Corinth, Fort Pillow, which you remember was the target of the bombardment at Plum Bend, Arkansas, was abandoned. Union troops would soon occupy the fort, joined by the Western Flotilla. With Beauregard moving his army further south to Tupelo, Mississippi, Memphis was deemed indefensible. The Confederate government would take steps to evacuate the city, going as far as to begin to burn the unfinished ironclad Tennessee. M. Jeff Thompson would remain with his infantry, as well as Captain Montgomery and the River Defense Fleet. He would have eight ships against the Western Flotilla, still commanded by Charles Davis. Davis was not alone, though. He was joined by Colonel Charles Ellett. Charles Ellett was a former engineer who was a big advocate of ramming for naval purposes, having witnessed a ship ramming while in Europe. Before the war, he had built what was at the time the largest suspension bridge and another suspension bridge for the railroad that was the first of its kind. Despite being turned down by the Navy, Edwin Stanton would see value in the creation of ramming vessels 
and so appointed him a colonel of engineers. So, in 1862, Ellet commanded the Ram Fleet. To make matters more confusing, the Ram Fleet was actually an army operation, hence Ellet's rank of colonel. Five ironclads, the Benton, Louisville, Carondelet, Cairo, and St. Louis, would be combined with Queen of the West, Monarch, Lancaster, and Switzerland, those being the Ram Fleet. On June 6th, the Confederate ships, probably still high on their success from Plum Bend, would steam out to engage the Union vessels. Crucially, they were unaware that the flotilla had been reinforced with rams. Rebel ships would try the same tactics that had disabled two ironclads a short while before. Armed with the makeshift cotton bale armor, they would come within range of Ellet's rams. Monarch and Queen of the West would move toward the General Price and Colonel Lovell. Before engaging, the Colonel Lovell would reverse engines, unfortunately making them the perfect target. Ellet's Queen of the West would make a direct hit on the Colonel Lovell, almost tearing the ship in half. Of the 86 men on board, only 18 survived as the Colonel Lovell sank. The Sumter would ram the damaged Queen of the West, with sharpshooters positioned on the vessel taking shots on Ellet's flagship. Colonel Ellet was actually wounded in the knee, which would prove mortal, the only Union casualty of the battle. With one ram down, the Beauregard would go directly for the USS Benton, which would take the hit and pummel the enemy vessel. Around the same time that the Beauregard was taking heavy fire, the General Price would run aground, adding to the misfortunes of the Confederacy. A shot that reached the Thompson's magazine would explode, and likewise, the Little Rebel and Sumter would be disabled in the fight. Almost making good on a retreat, the General Bragg would catch fire after the cotton bale armor sparked from a Union hit. With the remainder of the Confederate ships sunk or disabled, only the General Van Dorn escaped to Vicksburg and safety. The Confederates would suffer over 100 casualties and around 150 captured. With the First Battle of Memphis in the books, the city would fall into northern hands. In addition, the furthest northern bastion of the Confederacy would now be Vicksburg. The Van Dorn would gather with the ironclad CSS Arkansas on the White River for continued action. And it won't be too long before we get into an expedition to the White River on behalf of the Federals, so stay tuned for that. We need to wrap up events in the Shenandoah Valley this week. So remember, Winchester was taken by Jackson, which sent a shockwave through Washington. Lincoln would direct McDowell to send shields into the valley, converge with Fremont, 
and eliminate the threat. Banks also was regrouping and moved back into Winchester, so there were still three armies now being sent for Stonewall. Lincoln would not understand the complexity of Fremont's situation, and Fremont would likewise misunderstand his orders, or perhaps even disobey them. The Pathfinder was supposed to move on Harrisonburg, but was taking a more northerly route with a mountain between him and his objective. Supporting Banks by heading to Winchester was thought to be the point. Stanton would then inform Fremont to stand by. Shields would move his division to Front Royal, scattering the small enemy forces that were stationed there. Skirmishing had occurred around Harper's Ferry, with the successful defense of the city by the Federals. Now Jackson would realize it was his turn to retreat, gathering all his forces and then turning south back to Stanton. Jackson decided to pull his troops out of Harrisonburg and move to a place called Port Republic. Port Republic sat at a place where the north and south forks of the Shenandoah River converged, so with increased rain it became an obstacle for the attacking armies. Shields was moving down from Luray, taking the same route Jackson had when surprising the northerners at Front Royal. Fremont was moving in on Harrisonburg from the west, having crossed the mountains at long last. Outside of Harrisonburg, Turner Ashby decided to set an ambush for the oncoming mountain department on a place called Chestnut Ridge. Meeting the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves, otherwise called the Bucktails, because of the deer tails they attached to their hats. These men carried, at least initially in the war, 1859 breechloaders, adding to their mystique as good marksmen. Ashby would engage the 13th with his men and have a horse shot from under him before being struck down with a bullet to the side. A counterattack would actually capture the lieutenant colonel of the 13th and drive off the Federals. Jackson was distraught at having lost Ashby despite their differences. His loss would be lamented by the superior, sparking the chivalric legend of Turner Ashby. This legend would actually lead there to be a monument built close to the site where Ashby fell. At least at the time of this recording, it is still there today, directly above some sports fields that James Madison University built. And I will say that it is a very nice spot if you are, in theory, taking a class where you have to take pictures of the sunset. And I know that probably sounds ridiculous, but it was half a credit and a great spot to take the picture of a sunset one day a week for a semester, let me tell you. As the two armies converge, Jackson would decide to divide his forces. Ewell would be deployed at the more western town of Cross Keys, with the rest of his forces sitting at Port Republic. Fremont would deploy his army to face off against Ewell on June 8, 1862. 
The rebels had been deployed with Stuart, Elsie, and Tremble forming the left, center, and right. Trimble would see some success driving two Union regiments before a counterattack by the brigades of Bolin and Stahl. Stahl had primarily German immigrants from New York, as well as the Bucktails. Bolin, in his command, would have the 58th New York, the Polish Legion. They would stop the rebel advance and add pressure to Ewell's right. Ewell would send reinforcements to help Tremble, but the regiments would become disorganized and tangled. Artillery from the Federal side would open up, and despite having the rebels in a precarious position, they were ordered to the rear, ending the action essentially on the right. Milroy, commanding his brigade in the center, would grow tired of an artillery duel and move to attack Ewell. Seeing some success, but much in the same way of the artillery, would be ordered to cease and withdraw. Fremont, who had not issued prior orders to Milroy, had received a correspondence from Shields that they would catch the Confederates in the rear, and thus he would call off the assault. Milroy frustratingly saw Shank's brigade unengaged, but the battle was over, with the North moving out of their captured ground back to where they started. Union forces had lost 684 casualties as opposed to 287 for Ewell. Having checked Fremont, Jackson would turn to Shields and the fate of the campaign. I have seen it argued that Fremont's actions at Cross Keys essentially sealed the deal, but he was following orders to withdraw so perhaps that is not exactly fair. Shields had the intention of engaging both at the same time, but his forces were still strung out. Samuel S. Carroll had skirmished the day before with the rebel pickets, but had not withdrawn, as Shields wanted, to coordinate a true assault with Fremont. Instead, Jackson would take the fight to him. Carroll was combined with some regiments of Erastus Tyler's brigade, and they would see the rebels advancing toward them on the 7th. Yule had been pulled back by Jackson, thus no one was facing Fremont. This would be important as the Battle of Port Republic unfolded. Now here's where the battlefield terrain came into play. On one side was the Shenandoah River, with relatively flat terrain, with the river road running through it. The Union would eventually set up their troops along the Lewiston Road because where these two connected was a coaling, or an elevated piece of ground, essentially because it was a place to get coal from, as the name would imply. On this coaling was placed artillery along with the 66th Ohio supporting. The 66th would participate in many of the main battles of the East before heading west, part of Sherman's march to the sea. Thus, these men would be grizzled veterans. Not so at Cross Keys, where they will see their first action. Now, the coaling provided a good field of fire for the northern forces, and the artillery was deadly 
as Winder's brigade advanced to engage Tyler. Jackson understood that the coaling needed to be taken. Sharpshooters had made their way through the dense forest, first to pick off the artillerymen before being driven away by the 66th. Stonewall would turn to Taylor and his primarily Louisiana brigade to take the coaling next. They would see some success before being driven off by well-timed reinforcements. Ewell would show up in time to deploy some of his troops, catching two Union regiments as they moved to support the coaling and hitting them with deadly fire. Despite heavy hand-to-hand -hand fighting on the coaling itself, the Federal line would crumble and be put to flight back to Shields, who was not present on the field. At the conclusion of Port Republic, the action ended with a thousand casualties for the North, as opposed to around 800 for the South. This would also bring the Valley Campaign of 1862 to a close. Shields would move north to rejoin McDowell. Fremont would move to Winchester and back to Banks. Jackson would soon be on his way to Richmond, screened by cavalry. With the exception of Cross Keys, every battle had been skillfully managed to the Confederate advantage in numbers. But overall, what does it mean? Well, yes, Jackson really did not gain too much, but he did hold down these reinforcements from joining the Siege of Richmond. Likewise, the Valley would not be put under serious pressure again until 1864. It's sometimes overlooked exactly how important the Shenandoah Valley is to the Confederacy. We see it as a breadbasket, yes, that is true, but it's also an avenue that can be taken if there is ever going to be an invasion of the North. That's probably the best route. The Confederate base of operations in Richmond can be fairly easily defended with the Blue Ridge Mountains acting as a kind of barrier. There's different gaps that one can take to have easier terrain, but if you have less men like the Confederacy does, they're at a numerical disadvantage, then these gaps are going to be key because you don't need as many men to defend them. For me, though, we can answer our question simply. If not a genius, was Jackson an excellent military commander? The answer to that, I think, is yes. Was he facing inferior opposition? Not really. It's easy to say, well, if there had been different personnel present, then Stonewall is destroyed at Kernstown, or is a match in terms of maneuver. This kind of arm chairing is nice, but given the generals present, their orders were from Washington, and I think it unlikely you see a drastic change in my mind if there is an alternative placed. Maybe I'm really far off on that, but I'll let you be the judge. I will say, though, that we are in a very different world in 1862 than, say, in 1864 when Lincoln is going to sort of let Grant do whatever he wants to do. So it's not really fair to say, well, if somebody like of Grant's stature, maybe an equivalent general in the East is there, then it's just going to be completely different.
This week, we also have a famous incident that earns Benjamin Butler the nickname of the Beast. Remember that Butler had been the commander of the ground forces when New Orleans fell, although the Navy had been responsible for the actual capture of the city, and Butler would not arrive until three days later. Marines from the USS Pocahontas had come ashore and placed the U.S. flag on the Mint building. A group of rebel sympathizers tore down the flag despite a shot from the naval vessel striking very close by. William Mumford was among these individuals, although it has been thought he was not actually the culprit who tore down the flag. Even the motivations of some of the flag-removing party was brought into question, with some even saying the intention was to protect, not destroy. Remember, there were those of the city who wanted to avoid retaliation. We see this in several instances. Savannah is another one just off the top of my head that comes to mind. They don't want the city to be damaged or destroyed, so they don't want any instances that's going to cause unrest among the populace or otherwise anger the captors. Butler would arrest Mumford and put him on trial. Now the question was whether the city had actually been occupied at the time of the flag being torn down or not. New Orleans, amongst other rebel cities, would surrender rather than run the risk of property damage by the Union. Although they had surrendered, hence the Marines moving ashore, the Marines would leave with Farragut as he continued up the Mississippi. While not justified, Mumford and his compatriots would not have technically violated martial law in that case, something the lawyer Butler should have been aware of. Mumford, a native of North Carolina, was living in New Orleans and a veteran of the Seminole and Mexican-American Wars. Found guilty, he was executed on June 7th in the courtyard of the Old Mint Building. Robert E. Lee would demand an explanation from Halleck, and the Beast would have a figurative bounty placed on his head. It did not help that Butler had become harsh with those who did not pledge their allegiance to the Union, confiscating property in some cases. He likewise would state any woman who insulted a U.S. soldier would be treated like a prostitute. Weirdly, though, Butler was apparently in touch with Mumford's widow for the rest of his life, actually securing her two government jobs while in Congress. He would soon be recalled from New Orleans later in the summer. On June 12th, we will have the great ride around McClellan's army, conducted by Jeb Stuart. In many ways, this was a coming out party for Stuart, who immediately grabbed the attention of the Southern press. We can also say, in some ways, it was a welcome to the grand stage for John Singleton Mosby, who served as his primary scout. Robert E. Lee would assign Jeb Stuart with the task of gathering intelligence. 1,200 troopers would accompany their flamboyant cavalry leader to the north in the proximity of Hanover Courthouse before swinging wide behind the Federal Army, encountering light pickets along the way. Without much resistance, the Rebel cavalry was able to take over 160 prisoners as well as burn supplies of the Federal Army. 
They even threatened White House, which was the base of operation for McClellan. This position was reinforced with infantry and artillery, so a move to capture the base was deemed unwise. Stewart did find himself in the awkward position of being unable to retreat back the way he had come. Federal cavalry would chase the column in his famous ride around the Army of Potomac. These Union cavalry reserves were commanded by Philip St. George Cook, who was actually Jeb's father-in-law. Now, I do not know what kind of relationship Jeb had with his father-in-law, but I am willing to guess, since they were on opposite sides of the war, there was an extra relish in being one step ahead of this particular enemy. In addition to cavalry, John Reynolds and his Pennsylvania reserves were also on their way. Toward the end of the trek, the troopers were almost trapped by a bridge that had been damaged. Repair work was done just in time, with Federal cavalry on their heels. I've actually seen several accounts of this particular part of the raid. There were very dire moments, Jeb Stewart even exclaiming at one point that the game was sort of up, almost admitting defeat. Overall, the raid did little to hamper the larger northern forces, but it did go very far in terms of Confederate morale. Remember, Seven Pines, although dubbed a Confederate victory, was seen as more of a setback. This came at the right time when compared to the growing list of defeats. In a write-up of the expedition, the Richmond Inquirer would write, There are many incidents connected with this march which we have not had time to recite. As an event, this achievement of General Stuart stands alone in the history of the war and rivals the most brilliant achievements of the lamented and glorious Ashby, of the invincible Morgan, and we will venture the gallant and dashing Jackson. So high praise indeed coming from the Richmond papers, especially combined with the claim there was $1 million in damage done by Stuart. Kind of like at Seven Pines, there is one big thing that comes out of the ride around McCullen, at least the first ride around McCullen, because there's going to be a second one, spoiler alert. Seven Pines, we saw that Johnson is wounded, Lee takes over, that's kind of the big thing that happens at the end. As a result of this raid, Stuart is able to give valuable intelligence back to Lee, and this intelligence is that the flank of the Union Army is in the open. And that, of course, means it's not protected. So there could be a potential flanking attack conducted by the Confederates. And if you remember from our tactics episode, they really do love their flanking movements. So this is going to be a valuable piece that's going to play out here in the future episodes. There was one casualty on the ride, and it is worth mentioning. Captain William Latinay was killed in an almost chivalric battle one-on-one -on -one with William Royal, captain in the 5th U.S. Cavalry, who despite being wounded, fired a pistol in Latinay, killing him, the only casualty of the expedition. The Virginia native was taken back to his Hanover County home for burial. 
This even sparked a poem titled The Burial of Latine, which I'm not going to recite the whole thing, but here is at least a taste. Let us not weep for him whose deeds endure. So young, so brave, so beautiful he died. As he had wished to die, the past is sure. Whatever yet of sorrow may betide. Those who still linger by the stormy shore, change cannot harm him now, nor fortune touch him more. There was also a painting commissioned of the same name by William D. Washington, which shows white women and black slaves present for the burial, all seemingly distraught. Now this was true, there were no male relatives of Latine present, as they were all in the Confederate army, and slaves were forced to be in attendance. This image is important because it's part of the lost cause narrative paintings that started to pop up at the conclusion of the Civil War. So there we go, we had a little bit of poetry and a little bit of art. Not something you normally see on this podcast. Let's close it out there. This week, we had the fall of Memphis, so continued bad luck on the Mississippi River for the Confederacy. We also put a bow on the Valley Campaign of 1862. Finally, we had Jeb Stewart gaining fame riding around McClellan's Army of the Potomac. Next week, we will head down to South Carolina to check in on what is going on down there. Connected to the fall of Memphis, we also have some more action in the Mississippi River Valley. To close it out, we will properly set up the seven days outside of Richmond. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.